Well, another installment of Shark Week is in the books. In case you don't know what Shark Week, Shark Week is a annual week of TV programming on the Discovery Channel that is dedicated, wait for it, wait for it, to sharks. Very good. You're a bright group. Uh, yeah, and, and certainly, as you, this may not surprise you, uh, hardly the star of the show year after year is the Great White, a beastie that thankfully few of us will ever see outside of a documentary. Now, yeah, I hear you. Um, now, something about the Great White that is, is worth our knowing, and, and that is um, you can't, you're not going to see it in an aquarium. You're not going to see a great white shark in an aquarium. There's several reasons uh, for that. One is it is a migratory species, which means it is just hardwired. It is designed to move and move far. And so it's simply not going to work to keep it contained within a, a, even the large, large body of water. That's it's like a, an aquarium. It's just not going to work. Also, it takes massive amounts of water, massive volumes of water for this beastie to thrive. It's got to keep moving. Water's got to keep flowing over those gills so it can continue to breathe. There's one last thing, a very practical thing, as far as, you know, if you're in an aquarium and you're running it as a business, great whites feed only on live animals. And that's not really a family-friendly event. And so you're just not, for all those reasons, and some that I'm sure I'm not aware of, you're not going to find a great white in an aquarium. The great white simply will not be domesticated. It will not be tamed. It cannot be governed, and it cannot be ruled. Not unlike our hearts that refuse to be governed and ruled. We need news of the coming of the Christ. We need news of the coming of the Christ. If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 22. It's on the screen. Uh, this is the first of the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew 22 at the very end of chapter 22, Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Hear now the Word of God. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, if we want to start here from the outset and to confess quietly, then indeed there are many areas, many areas of our hearts that we uh, simply refuse to let anyone outside of ourselves rule or govern. Uh, we hold to many pieces of territory, clutching to them with all that we have, refusing to look up to see who it is, who it is that is calling us to entrust not just most but all, all to you. 
Indeed, you are the, the Christ who has come, the Messiah. When we understand who you are and what that means, oh, the wisest thing, the greatest thing, the best thing is to yield it all gladly to you. And we ask then that you would help us to see and to respond in this beautifully sane way. We ask this in your name. Amen. I know this was the question that was on your mind when you came in the room. Who was Alf Landon? Who was Alf Landon? Alf Landon was the governor of Kansas in the 1930s. Didn't you know? He was the governor of Kansas in the 1930s. There's a little bit more about Alf Landon that's worth knowing. Uh, in the 1930s, the popular magazine Literary Digest conducted the public opinion polls of its large subscribership, relatively speaking, by uh, mail and even at that time on the phone. And they believed that a large sample size, their large sample size, would automatically generate infallible results in terms of their poll data. What the magazine and their editors failed to notice was that their readership at the time was far wealthier and therein more likely in those days to be Republican than the average U.S. voter, which then led the magazine to erroneously predict a landslide victory for Alf Landon over Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You know what the Electoral College tally was? Roosevelt, 523, and Landon, 8. The real nail-biter. It was a real nail-biter. Of course, uh, polling data, you know, if you study such things, follow such things, has never been infallible. Just ask the pundits after the 2016 election, uh, for instance, right? A lot of people were quite surprised with, with that. Well, interestingly enough, Jesus in his own way in this text is asking a polling question. What do you think about the Christ? The group there in front of him. What do you think? What do you think about the Christ. Now, the context of this is the very same context, the very same day. It's Tuesday of that week before Good Friday and Easter, and it's that very eventful day that we've been talking about over the last several weeks uh, here in, in chapter 22, and it's in the context of a dispute regarding Jesus's authority, his right to say and do the things that he was saying and doing in front of the people. What do you think about the Christ. Now, just for clarity's sake, Christ was not Jesus' last name, nor was it his first name. You know, not Jesus Christ, his last name, nor Christ Jesus, that being his first name. Christ is not a name. It's a title. It's a Greek word. It's a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, Messiah, which was the long-awaited deliverer of God's people, the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ. He had been hailed. Jesus had already at this point been hailed by the people as such a figure. He himself indeed had claimed to be, if not explicitly, at least implicitly, had claimed to be this figure. And the religious leaders in response to this, and that's what's going on here in this, this passage, had reviled him for this. And it wouldn't take much longer before the larger populace rejected him for this. And yet at the same time, all that said, he is the Christ. He is not to be, or ought not to be, reviled and rejected, but rather we should 
rejoice. Rejoice in the news of his coming. Jesus is indeed the Christ. We should be rejoicing in the news of his coming, especially when you consider what it means for him to be the Christ. And we get some glimmer of understanding of that just with this short passage. Three things, it's there in your outline. Simple, simple things, but profound in their implications. The ramifications of what it means for Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. His wisdom, his great profound wisdom. His lineage, unlike any other. And then his reign, his rule, greater, further, higher than our wildest imaginings. Those three things, when we have those together, those three wedded together, oh my goodness, all the, call, all the more cause for rejoicing when we understand that this is indeed, Jesus is indeed the Christ. Let's look at this just together for a few minutes, this passage. His wisdom is the first point. If you look at the last verse, verse 46 in the text, you see something of that alluded to just right there in the crowd's response. And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him anymore. This is something of the conclusion of everything that's transpired, this, this, this wave of questioners that have come to Jesus as in, in response to Jesus' answers to their questions. This is how everyone, this is the summary statement that Matthew then gives us. His answers, we've been talking about this over the last several weeks, the, the great wisdom on display by Jesus' answers. Let me just summarize that, and then we're going to get to something else that displays his wisdom here. So the answers that Jesus gives to these questioners that come to him, wave upon wave upon wave, three of them in that day, clearly there was some coordination going on here. These, these individuals representing three different parties within Judaism at the time, united only by one thing, and that is their opposition and hatred of Jesus. United by only, but it was, it was quite a unity. It was quite a unity. You have the Herodians... You have the Sadducees, and then you have the Pharisees, and they're all coming wave upon wave upon wave, trying to entrap him, trying to ensnare him, trying to publicly embarrass him. And how does Jesus respond to every one of these sword thrusts? He parries it. We've talked about this over the last several weeks. On every occasion, he, he engages with the question. He parries it despite all the, the intensity and the hostility of the moment. He's so, he's so much in control of what's going on and his own emotions and his own thoughts, and he's able to beautifully, winsomely uh, articulate these answers to the very questions, the very issues. He gives insight, brilliant insight into the issues that are raised, even in the midst of what's going on in, in th these, these uh, questioners' attempts to uh, unseat him, you might say, in the minds of the people. Well, okay, that's his answers. His answers alone display something, shine some light on his wisdom. But it's not just that. When you get to this text, then you begin to see not just his wisdom showing forth in his questions, but his wisdom shown forth in the, excuse me, in the answer, but in his wisdom shown forth in a question that he poses to the questioners. Jesus goes right to the heart of the issue. He's not interested in playing around on the edges and the fringes like, these, like his interrogators are. They think the thing to talk about is politics, that was the Herodians, or theology with the Sadducees, 
or ethics with the Pharisees. Ostensibly, that's what they thought was the issue. No, Jesus is more, far more interested in going to the root, the heart of it all, and that is identity. His. Who is he? And he goes right into the heart of the issue, and that's why he's raising the question that he is with Psalm 110. It, it goes right into the center of all of this. And Jesus shows himself in doing this to be the master, not just of answers, but of questions. He is the master asker of the question. We think of him as the answer man. He's also the question man. You think in terms of just a brief survey of Matthew's gospel. I'll give you just three examples. Matthew 14, he says to Peter, why did you doubt what a question. What a question. Matthew 16. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Chapter 20 to Bartimaeus, the blind beggar. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? And then you get to hear the chapter 22. What do you think about the Christ? Jesus is the master of the question. You think in terms of why we ask questions, right? Now, sometimes it's to gather information. Sometimes it's to gain understanding because we don't have it. And so we ask a question. But sometimes it's not for us to gain knowledge and understanding. It's to impart it. It's to give it. It's to help the other person that we're engaging in conversation with come to knowledge and understanding. And that's why we ask the question, and that's what Jesus is doing here. He has no deficit of understanding and knowledge. But the people that he's talking to do, and he is drawing them out, forcing them to think by putting this question right in front of them, going to the heart of the issue. What do you think about the Christ. What do you think about the Christ? What do I think about the Christ? What do we think about the Christ? Jesus is still asking these questions. He hasn't stopped. He is still the divine interrogator, prompting us with questions like this, such as his wisdom. And we see something more than of what it means for him to be the Christ. As he continues to ask, as he continues to prompt us through the Scriptures by his Spirit, working within us, as he continues to guide us, as he continues to provoke us, as he continues to pursue us, as he continues to work this work of transformation within us, asking such questions still today, such as his wisdom. Jesus, Jesus is the Christ Oh, my goodness, not reviling, not rejecting, but rejoicing, rejoicing in his coming. Such is his wisdom, so profound, so deep. Well, that takes us to the next thing, and that is his lineage. Unique, hardly begins to cover it. Um, unlike any other, hardly begins to, to, to do justice to it, because at one and the same time, he is fully man and fully God. And there's no one else that comes anywhere close to this. Fully man and fully God. This is the wonder of the incarnation. This is what we celebrate every December in the weeks in the Advent leading up to Christmas. The wonder of the incarnation. Fully 
God and fully man, the enfleshment, that's the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. It's, it's what is alluded to here, here in Matthew 22, verses 41 to 45. Let's read it again as Jesus is pushing his hearers. What do you, excuse me, now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. He's had enough of their questions. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Unlike any other, we're speaking here of someone who is on the one hand, the son of David and the Lord of David at the same time. Not one more so than the other, but at the same time. Now, now David, understand, David was an historical figure. Somewhere out there in the Middle East, you, we, we will find, well, we'll probably never find, but there are his bones out there. This is not a mythical figure. This is an historical figure. This is Israel's warrior king. One of the most preeminent, well, the, really the most preeminent ruler in Israel's eventful history. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1 and you read Jesus' genealogy, what you see there is that D Jesus is in the line of David. He is a descendant of David. David's DNA is somehow in Jesus' body, if you can think of that. Imagine that. He is in that sense, humanly speaking, on the horizontal plane, Jesus is the son of David. Now, to David was given a promise, a covenantal promise. It's recorded for us in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord promised that David's line would forever endure. He would always have a descendant upon the throne. Now, how in the world can that be, given the interruption the interruption of that lineage. How is that historically, really, in time and space possible? How is Psalm 119, excuse me, Psalm 110, what Dave read earlier, how is that even real without it being some kind of ancient exaggeration and hyperbole unless there's another side to the tension? Well, you have to have another side to the tension for there to be tension, right? It's the way that works. So Jesus, on the one hand, is absolutely the son of David, but he is absolutely at the same time the Lord of David. And that's how Psalm 110 can be real. And that's how 2 Samuel 7, the covenantal promise is fulfilled, that David would forever have someone on the throne, that his line of rule would forever endure. Now, think of, of what Jesus is quoting here from the first verse of Psalm 110. If these are just the words of a courtier, now by that I mean a, a, a royal court official, then the way that you could understand what he is saying here is, the Lord God said to my Lord the King, da-da-da-da-da-da. And that's the way a lot of people today read that. But that is certainly not the way Jesus read it. And that is certainly not the way that people of his day read it. But rather, this is not the words of a courtier, this is the, these are the words of the king. David is speaking these words. So somehow he is speaking of someone greater than himself when he says, the Lord said to my Lord. This is the king. The Lord God said to my Lord. Well, who is that? David's the greatest one on the, that there is. Who's greater than him? Who could he possibly be referring to? 
There's no one else out there except the Messiah, the Christ. And Jesus is making very clear that it's him, that it's him. And this is why this is the most quoted passage of the Old Testament in the New. You find it, I can't remember exactly the number of counts, but it's all through Paul's letters on into Peter, the book of Hebrews as well. It comes up again and again and again and again, speaking to the full humanity and divinity of Jesus and the wonder of that. Jesus' lineage as the Christ, unlike any other. Now, that's worth considering because on the one hand, that's in, it's beautifully comforting. It is beautifully comforting to know that, that this one that we follow, this one that sends us forth, this one who accompanies us, his claims outpace, outdo, and outstrip anybody else's. His wisdom exceeds and excels beyond any sage this world has ever known. And that's the one who's with us. That's the one who sends us. That's the one who calls us. And that ought to be really comforting when we take that to heart. But at the same time, it's not completely comfortable. It's not completely comfortable because he is so different than we are. He stands above us. He's not just beside us, but he's above us. Which means, given who he is, to follow this Jesus, to follow this Christ, means we need to be ready and prepared to be contradicted and corrected and challenged as he's doing his work of transformation in our life, as he's working to conform us more and more to his own image, making us more and more like Jesus. That is not entirely comfortable, but it is desperately needed for every one of us. And so again, with the news that Jesus is the Christ, the response that ought to come forth from our hearts is, again, not rejection, not reviling, but rejoicing because of who it is that has come. Which takes us to the last point, the final point, and this is connected with the first two, his, his great wisdom, his unique lineage. Because of all of that, and when yoked with all of that, we then also see his great reign. Let me just read verse 44 again as Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. What Jesus is making very clear in, in alluding and quoting from that text in reference to himself is that as the Christ, he has come as a conqueror. He has come as not just, in fact, not just a conqueror, but, but the conqueror the conqueror over the greatest of enemies, what would they be? Sin, Satan, and death. He has come as the conqueror of the greatest of enemies, sin. It's tyrannical power in and over us. He has discerned and decided to crush. 
and its presence to banish one day. Satan, the tempter, the accuser, the deceiver of his people, he will bind. Indeed, he is already bound and will ultimately destroy. Sin, Satan, death, all that that means in terms of the dissolution and disintegration, the splintering of all that was supposed to be, he has come to, to restore all that and make it the way it was supposed to be. And beyond that, shalom, that beautiful old Hebrew word shalom, peace, the way things were meant to be. He has come to crush as the conqueror of the greatest of enemies and therein bringing the greatest of victories. The greatest of victories. The imagery that is used here. The enemy under your feet. It's a graphic picture of the heel upon the throat of the enemy and crushing it. Crushing it. We need to know that. We need to hear that. And he has done that with the cross and it is coming in full with his return. This is the Christ that we welcome, that we rejoice in the news of. And he is a conqueror. And as a consequence of his conquering, he is also, and that is here as well, he is a king. The imagery spoken of here is a sitting. He is seated, not in a lazy chair, not in, in recumbency, not relaxed, not resting but ruling, not passive inactivity or laziness, but ultimate authority. That's what that imagery means in his seated, his being seated. And where? At the right hand of God, that positional place, that place of, of, of authority and rule beyond any other. Truly, Jesus, as we sing, is King of kings and Lord of lords. And there is no square inch of this cosmos or your life or you're weak, that he's not ruling over, that he's not in control over. And there are no exceptions, no footnotes, and no appendices to that. As though we would somehow want to think it's everything but ugh, that. It's all of it. Such is his reign. Such is his rule. This is the Christ we're speaking of. Disney has just come out with another one of these live-action remakes. Uh, I'm losing count now of, of the number that have come out and the number that are coming. Uh, one that recently hit the theaters was, was Aladdin. I, I haven't seen it. I saw the old one, the original, the animated version. I can't tell you how many times that was uh, on, on a VHS. Does anyone have? You know, they don't make those anymore. VHS players, uh, they're, they're done, they're done. Well, anyway, one of my favorite lines from the old animated version of, uh, of Aladdin was when the genie is describing to Aladdin what it's like to have the power that he does and to live in that little lamp. And this is how he puts it, and I'm not going to attempt to do a Robin Williams on you, but this is how he puts it. Phenomenal cosmic power. 
itty bitty little living space. I guess I did do a Robin Williams, okay. Um, if you've seen the film, though, you know how that operates as a plot device as things progress. Uh, shall I say to be... It, it, it shows that that great power is rather limited. For all the wonder, for all, for all the, the free exercise of the lamp's power, seemingly, it is very limited. Now, back to reality. Jesus' power, his rule, his reign, is not the stuff of film or fiction or fantasy. It is real. It is absolutely positively real. And the extent to which we will believe that and take that to heart, to inhale it, to breathe it in, to embrace it, it will have powerful effects upon our lives. We were never meant to be in control. You're not. Stop trying to pretend you are. You release that, oh my goodness, and you begin to understand who is. It is beautifully freeing. Beautifully freeing. Now, I know I've been mentioning the Apollo space program a lot uh, over the last month uh, or so. Bear with me. Uh, this is not actually Apollo 11. This is Apollo 13. Uh, and it's specifically, I'm going to quote a line from the film, in case you haven't seen it. Uh, year, uh, it's like 20 years ago, I think, already now. Uh, Tom Hanks plays the role of Jim Lovell. Now, Apollo 13, unless you, you don't know your history, and I hope you know something of this, was the story of a mission failure on the one hand, but at the same time, one of NASA's greatest successes in getting those astronauts home alive. Tremendous, in that sense, a successful failure. So there's a, a point in the film when the astronauts are on their way back home, and uh, whether or not they're going to get home is not clear at all. It, it, certainly in, in uh, 1971, it wasn't clear at all. Um, and Lovell is being, in the film, Lovell is, is shown being interviewed on a, on a television. They're showing this, this film footage. This is how it goes, and this is pretty true to the facts. Well, I tell you, I remember this one time. I'm in a banshee at night in combat conditions, so there's no running lights on the carrier. It was the Shangri-La, and we were in the Sea of Japan, and my radar had jammed, and my homing signal was gone because somebody in Japan was actually using the same frequency. And so it was, I, it was leading me away from where I was supposed to be, and I'm looking down at a big black ocean, so I flip on my map light, and then suddenly, zap. Everything shorts out right there in my cockpit. All my instruments are gone. My lights are gone. I can't even tell what my altitude is. I know I'm running out of fuel, so I'm thinking about ditching in the ocean, and I, I, I look down there, and then there, in the darkness, there's this, there's this green trail. It's like a long carpet that just is laid out right beneath me, and it was the algae. It was that phosphorescent stuff that gets churned up in the wake of a big ship, and it was leading me home. And you know, if my cockpit lights hadn't shorted out, there's no way I'd ever have been able to see that. So you never know what events are to transpire to get you home. Sometimes the lesser lights have to go out for us to see. Sometimes the lesser lights have to go out for us to be able to see. My friends, we may not know in this life what God's reasons are. 
in his dealings with us. We can know these two things. There are always his reasons. And those reasons are always generated and driven by his love. Always. That's this Jesus, the Christ. That's who's come. That's who's come. Our response ought never to be reviling or rejecting, but rejoicing. Let me end with this last story. So it's NFL preseason football's time, right? Now, I do root for the Titans. I do. Um, but I did grow up a lifelong Redskins fan, and it has had a lot of, uh, given the fact of the, the, the misery of that, has had a great deal of character formation uh, on me through the years. Redskin fans have not had a lot to be enthusiastic or encouraged about in a long, long time. In fact, not since about 2004. Yeah, about 15 years when the, the announcement came out that Joe Gibbs, the three-time Super Bowl winning coach, had been rehired. And, and the, the scream, the exultation from the city of D.C., I don't doubt, probably registered on some seismograph uh, somewhere. The Washington Post, the next day, ran stories, headlines like, like this. The return of the king. Hall of Fame coach returns to team after 11-year hiatus. Faithful, see chance of salvation. I'm not making those up. It was a good run. It was a little overdone, those headlines, to say the least. Even Gibbs thought it was a bit much. Um, but a lot had changed. He did okay in, in round two. But a lot had changed in the years since he had left, and so he eventually did step down. Okay, here's my from lesser to greater argument. If Washington Redskins fans can rejoice in the coming of a beloved coach, how much more should we in the coming of the Christ? That just, I mean, I know that seems almost like insulting in your, to your intelligence. But think of the foothold that sports and football has on our culture. But it is no ultimate thing as much as we make it out to be. There are no cosmic consequences with the outcome of a game. There are no eternal stakes involved with who is hired and who is fired and who is, who is going to make it in the, the Hall of Fame and all those things. None of that. None of that is on the line. And here we are talking about Jesus as the Christ with his, the extent of his wisdom and the uniqueness of his lineage and the wonder of his reign. My friends, this is the Christ. How our lives should be typified by rejoicing at his coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we read these events, as they transpired there that day, recorded for us in Matthew 22, we know that those responses to you were historical. The events were historical. The responses were historical. There were real people that day who hated you. who reviled you, who turned 
from you, who rejected you. They did not know, they could not see who you were, why you came, and the ramifications of that. Indeed, we have to go further and say it wasn't just they couldn't see, but they refused to see. They refused to see, refused to yield, refused to entrust themselves to you. Oh, would you be merciful upon us this morning? Would we not be numbered among the revilers and rejectors, but the rejoicers, the ones who see and whose hearts are captured by the wisdom, the lineage, and the reign of the Christ, and who gladly have given and are giving continuously ourselves to you, entrusting everything, all that we are, to you. Would you be so merciful as to give us eyes with which to see these things? You, you, we pray in your name. Amen. If I may 